You're listening to an American Theatre podcast. American Theatre is a publication of Theatre Communications Group. www.americantheatre.org Welcome, good afternoon. It's August 12th, 2022. This is our uh, uh, summer edition of Offscript, American Theatre's podcast on all things theatrical. I'm Rob Weinert Kent, the Editor-in-Chief of American Theatre. My pronouns are he, him. And although my backdrop is uh, from Manhattan, it's the uh, Lincoln Center Clareto Theater, because I'll be talking to Aya Ogawa, the playwright of The Nosebleed, which is playing there now. I'm actually coming to you from Queens by the magic of Zoom. Um, uh, it's, we took the month off in July, you might have noticed, uh, or maybe you didn't, but anyway, we're back. Um, and so we have a lot of catching up to do uh, on uh, since our last off script. Um, just a little housekeeping, I wanna say, uh, if you like what we do, want us to keep doing it, even do better. Uh, please support TCG with a, with a membership. You go to americantheater.org slash join and uh, support our work and support the work of TCG. Um, we're working up toward a season preview issue. Uh, back in the days when we had a print magazine, we wish you planned to again, officially, that, that's our official word. Um, we would do a giant season preview in October, which had a, in the back of it uh, a big fat listing of all the things going on all over the country for the coming season. And we do a top 10 most produced plays list using that data um, and a top 20 most produced playwrights list. We're planning to do that again this year for the first time since 2019. So if you are programming theater uh, anywhere in the country and you are a TCG member, you should go to our website, uh, go to the on us stages and put your information in there, please. Uh, the deadline is August 31st. That's enough uh, housekeeping. I want to just talk about some of the things that we've been we've been um, we've been writing about and uh, broadcasting in the past month. I'll try to keep this as quick as possible as I want to get to our conversation with Aya as soon as I can. Um, our last podcast was was a live podcast from the uh, TCG conference in Pittsburgh. Our first in person since 2019. It was hybrid, but but there was also an in person uh, component in Pittsburgh and. As we often do, we recorded the podcast live with some great folks in Pittsburgh. Um, and after that, I, we, we, we've done a lot of coverage of a lot of festivals and, and conferences um, and celebrations over the past few months. So I'll just go through them really quickly. The main one you should look for, a great record by our, my colleague, Ali Pearson of the TCG conference. It's called So Nice to See You. Take a look at that. It's a comprehensive uh, coverage of all the days of the conference in Pittsburgh, all the people who were there, what they said. Uh, we also had a, a photo essay from the LMDA conference, the Literary Man Managers and Dramaturgs of the Americas Conference, which is recent. There's a photo essay of that. We had a report from the, the International O'Neill Conference, which we haven't really covered before. Um, we had a great report from uh, Taranj Yegizarian from the Festival d'Avignon, um, where she went and particularly was focused particularly on how many Middle Eastern uh, and so uh, South Asian work was presented there. But she also just did comprehensive coverage. Uh, it was a wonderful piece. Um, we took Don Shuey, a wonderful writer on New York theater out of retirement to write about Mabu Mines' 50th anniversary celebration here in New York. Um, we wrote previews of Playpen, which came back in person this summer and of the Fire This Time Festival, a uh, 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 festival of new black work um, that came back this summer in July. That was by Brittany Samuel. Brittany Samuel also wrote a wonderful piece for us about the Lorraine Hansberry statue that you might have uh, caught in Times Square. It's now on tour through the country and it's going to eventually end up in Chicago where Lorraine Hansberry is from. Um, 
a, a statue of her at work. Um, so I'll just go through this quickly. A couple of far-flung production reports. Uh, Robert Avila, a wonderful writer from the Bay Area, has written for us, has not written for us for a long time, but he's he's uh, he was one of Jim O'Quinn's uh, favorites covering Eastern European theater. And uh, he hooked up with Arpad Schilling, a Hungarian uh, theater maker many years ago, who was in conversation with a small company in Santa Rosa called The Imaginists. And after many years, they finally got together this earlier this year to make a play together. So Arpad Schilling and his, his company came over and they made a play called SDA, Someone Dies Again, which happened to be about uh, shooting and gun culture. And it premiered uh, in late May and early June in the, the Bay Area, which was a really uncomfortable and uh, timely time for such a play. Obviously, that was around the time of the Buffalo and the Vivaldi shooting. So that's really worth looking at how that piece came, took shape and what how it felt in the moment. Another really fascinating piece, uh, there was an HBO documentary called Mind Over Murder about a small town that was divided against itself over a really brutal murder that happened and then even more divided over an exoneration that happened of the people they initially uh, suspected and then they the new evidence came out and the convictions were overturned. Uh, this documentary goes into the town and explores those divisions and the case, but the director, Nanfu Wang, uh, wanted some way to, to sort of climax the, the, the series and so she put on a play in the sort of the spirit of Laramie Project or a Cornerstone production with the Beatrice community players that dramatized what the town had been through and the town came and saw it. And it, 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 I, I'm getting kind of chills talking about it. It's a really amazing piece. I haven't seen the series, I hear it's great, but I think you should look at that piece uh, about how theater in a small town uniquely can bring people together in a way that, you know, talking to them and talking heads in a documentary or bringing them to court or in protests or whatever, not the same as sitting in the theater and empathizing together. Um, some Q and A's that we've done over the past month. I spoke to Robert Barry Fleming. I was very excited to talk to him and interested because Actors Theater of Louisville, as you might know, did not have a Humana Festival this year. And there's a lot of misconceptions about what that means. Um, and I tried to clear some of those up with Robert about the direction he's taking that theater and whether there will be, there will be new play development there, what form it will take in the future. Definitely worth checking that out. A wonderful Q&A with Robert Hooks, who is the founder of the Negro Ensemble Company. Um, Nathaniel Nesmith has this ongoing series talking to mostly folks who've, who've retired but had storied careers and are, are, are not well known enough. That's a great interview. I also spoke to Jason Alexander. You may know that name. Uh, the Seinfeld actor uh, who's directing the, uh, world, uh, the L.A. premiere of Stephen Levinson's If I Forget, which is uh, getting great reviews. And it was a fascinating conversation talking to him. Um, I, th I think most people know that he was a he was a very much a theater actor until Seinfeld snapped him up. So we had a lot to talk about. Um, I'll race through this as best as quickly as I can. There were a lot of leadership changes in the past couple months. Susan Booth is in at the Goodman. She's from the Alliance. Um, she's going to take over for Bob Falls at the Goodman. Idris Goodwin is at the is the new artist director of Seattle Children's Theater. Alan Paul, the new AD at Barrington Stage Company. Tom Parrish is the new managing director at Berkeley Rep. Adam Immerwar and Laura Lee are going to co-lead Village Arts, which is a musical theater focused uh, company in Issaquah near Seattle. Um, they're taking over for 
the founder who was both managing and artistic director. And so they're going to split that into two roles. Also, Kendra Ann Flournoy is the new managing AD at Detroit Rep. Eric Ting is out at Cal Shakes after seven years. He's going to, he's going to relocate to, the, to New York. Um, and then this is not a simple one. We tried to report on this as best we could. You might've read something about Victory Gardens in Chicago and the board that uh, pushed Ken Matt Martin out after less than a year in the job. Uh, there's more to report on that, but we do do a report on some of the the mess that's, that's going on with the board um, and leadership there. Um, so look for more on that. Another theater company that we reported on the end of was Southern Rep in New Orleans. Part of the story there is that they moved to a, a predominantly black neighborhood and didn't do enough outreach uh, or the right kind of outreach. And they admit their fault and then they, they closed. Uh, it looks like they're going to be reborn or there's going to be a new company in its place called the Andre Caillou Center for Performing Arts and Cultural Justice. And that's in collaboration with Lauren Turner's No Dream Deferred Production. So we'll stay on that story as it develops. Um, other theater organizational news. We had a wonderful piece by um, Calendra Smith about EST, Ensemble Studio Theater in New York. Um, uh, doing a story on, on how it's, it's, it's trying to respond to calls for change. Um, it's a sort of in-process story. It's not a story about a story that a, a, a theater that's imploded because of problems or a story where people are calling for change. It's kind of the change has been called for and how are they how are they internalizing that? The artist director, uh, William Carden, is stepping down um, and he it's going to be a slow and intentional process. So that's, that's a sort of nuts and bolts story to look at. Along those lines, we had a, a package of three stories uh, about theaters that were part of a Wallace Foundation study called the Alchemy of High-Performing Theaters of Color. And those are fascinating pieces about three theaters that are making it work. Um, Theater Moo in, um, uh, uh, in Twin Cities, East West Players in Los Angeles, and Detroit Repertory Theater in, obviously, Detroit. Um, that's worth looking at. Um, we also did, did another installment in our NOAA Theater, where we just sort of shine a spotlight on an interesting theater that, that's a member that maybe people don't know about. This is one of the most amphibian stage at the small theater in Fort Worth, Texas that does experimental work. Um, along the lines of institutional change, <laughs> uh, we had a wonderful follow-up by Rosie Brownlow Culkin. She wrote a piece for us some, some months ago about the, the long overdue change in, in, in the internship protocols, the way folks uh, are have been exploited um, uh, in return for experience or paying their dues. Um, she spoke a little bit about this, the situation in Williamstown, also Actors Theatre of Louisville. We really felt like there was a need for a fellowship. What, what is the, what's next for that? What's next for mentorship? Uh, if these programs go away, how are theaters gonna, gonna train the next generation? So she, it's an ongoing piece, but I think she, she, she covers a lot of the, those issues. So look for that, what's next for internships? Um, along those lines, Princeton uh, Theatre Program, uh, Princeton University Theatre Program has, uh, gotten rid of uh, audition, the traditional audition structure, and they have something called try on theater, where students can come in and try on roles. And it's kind of a mutual sussing out. So it's not just people sitting behind a table and, and someone singing and saying next, next. It's more of a, let's try what it's like to be a stage manager. Let's try this. Let's try on this play. Do you, do you respond to this play? So it's a more collaborative process. That's really interesting. Look at that one. Try on theater. A couple book reviews. We had a wonderful book, uh, book review by Jay Duckworth the prop master of Jennifer McClure's book about blood effects called Bloody Brilliant. 
that's a fun one to read. Um, also fun and sort of harrowing, uh, uh, Mary Rogers, the composer of Once Upon a Mattress, she wrote a memoir with Jesse Green um, called Shy, which is extremely frank about her generation of uh, musical theater folks, including Sondheim and Hal Prince and those folks. Uh, there's a the review of that by Misha Burson, a rave review, and also an excerpt gives you a sense of her brutally frank voice. Um, just a few more things. Um, we do uh, do a little Broadway coverage. Uh, a couple of popular pieces we had in that vein was uh, a piece about uh, the three the three women who played the baker's wife in Into the Woods on Broadway, starting with Joanna Gleason and then Carrie O'Malley in the revival, and now Sarah Bareilles. Um, just talking about the way the the different ways they approach that role. And they're thinking about it. And as Sarah Burles points out, does she have a name? So Sarah Burles has given her a name. Um, you know, the baker doesn't have a name either, but she's called the baker's wife. She's a name and a possessive. So she's trying to claim a little more agency there. Two pieces that dealt in part with Funny Girl uh, and the controversy about that and the controversy about Beanie Feldstein's casting and her uncasting. One was by Meg Masseron, who talked about how anti-fat prejudice uh, played into the way people talked about Beanie, whether people thought she was good or not. Uh, Meg detected a lot of disgusting, uh, uh, misogynistic and anti-fat uh, rhetoric. Um, Emma Jude Harris and Gabrielle Hoyt had a, an amazing dialogue about the Jewish angle on both Funny Girl and the Layman trilogy. Um, it's hard to sum up all the many places that their dialogue goes. Take, take a look at that. It's kind of a critical critical dialogue among two really brilliant funny people. Um, we also did a profile of Kevin Morrow, a wonderful musical theater actor who's on tour now with Hades Town. He's not playing Hermes, the Andrew Shields part, he's playing Hades, the uh, Patrick Page basso profundo role. The last piece I'll mention, and then we'll get to Aya, is a wonderful dialogue, again, hard to sum up, between two theater makers, playwright Roger Q. Mason and director Danilo Gambini. And it's, it's visiting a, a topic which is not unfamiliar, to our pages or our minds, uh, but they take it in a new direction about taking plays beyond realism and what that means. It's not just an aesthetic consideration, it's also about who belongs on stage, what kinds of bodies, what kinds of stories. Um, anyway, that gives you an, a, a quick breezy overview of a couple months of coverage. And I apologize for racing through that. I think talking about non-realistic theater and whose stories deserve to be told is a great way, great segue to introduce Aya Ogawa, playwright, director, performer, all-around theater person, who's with us today. Aya? Hi. Hey, how are you doing? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's great to have you. Uh, so your play, The Nosebleed, is at Lincoln Center Theater right now. You're in it. Um, uh, we talked a little bit before, before we came on that you worked at TCG some year, years ago. Is that correct? Yeah, I did. I um, I decided to you know, uh, I had a long, um, I, I, I was working for the Japan Society in the Performing Arts Program for about six or seven years. And then I got pregnant with my first kid and I decided that that would be a great time to go on a job interview. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, because I saw that Amelia Cachapero, who has always been a kind of mentor to me um, in many different contexts and, and just someone I admire so much. There was a position um, open to work with her. So I was like, mm -hmm. oh my God, that 
would be so amazing. So I interviewed and I got the job and, you know, I gave birth and then I had three months to be with my baby. And then I started at TCG. That was, um, I guess, all of 2010, I was there. Hmm. And during that time, I have to say it was like one of the most difficult <laughs> years of my life. Like no offense to, to, to TCG at all. Sure, but sure. Just like, I mean, you're a parent, so you probably yeah. can speak to this as well, but hmm. it was just a moment of like, what the hell? Like, what, yes. what am I, what am I doing with my life? Who, right. who am I? I'm not getting enough sleep, yeah. um, you know, and just working full time and essentially my entire salary going towards childcare yeah. and on top of that, not being able to make work I uh, make art um mm -hmm. the way I wanted yeah. to just like didn't make sense to me as an equation so I was fortunate enough to be in a position where I could quit and and become a freelance uh freelancer and be a mom and continue to make plays um so that's that's how it all that was the, yeah I was yeah I started in 2009 at, at American Theater and TCG uh, right before my first son was born um and so I had to just cobble together a leave, a leave when I had just started. So it was it was wow. a similar, a similar situation. I, but yeah, I, I, I'm sure maybe you know this. Uh, I, um, you joined the ranks of Tony Kushner and Molly Smith Metzler as people who worked at TCG and now have gone on to great careers as playwrights and dramatists. There's others, but those are the names that pop out, uh, yeah. pop out to, at the moment. But it, it, as we talked about, a lot of folks are uh, uh, who work at TCG, understandably, are also theater workers. Um, Tell me a little bit about what's jumping the jumping ahead to the to the to the nosebleed. I, I the title I, I find uh, beguiling. It's kind of a misdirection in many ways. It's not a play about a nosebleed, and there's not that much blood in the, actual blood in the play, right? <laughs> My son would argue that it is all about his nosebleed, um, but but you're right. It, it's kind of um, there there are two nosebleed moments um, mm -hmm. and it is the same nosebleed event that happens at the top of the show and then kind of comes back towards the middle. Um, but to me, it was really that event that precipitated all of my thinking and soul searching and, and was a catalyst really for um, the unraveling journey that I go on in examining the relationship that I had with my father um, and what kind of, you know, what do I owe my cultural heritage and how do I pass that along to my children? Um, and the nosebleed being, you know, something so mundane and happens to everybody and yet it involves blood and the blood connection, the blood mm -hmm. that connects my kids to me and me to my parents and so on and so forth. Right. And then there's a little sort literal sort of disembodiment or re-embodiment later in the play with that sort of ritual. I'm not a literal <laughs> disembodiment, but a sort of symbolic re, re I'm remembering. I know that people talk about remembering literally means putting members back together, putting putting the body back together. Um, mm. um, I realize we just jumped in talking about the play. Tell me a little bit about how you describe this play to people. This is a play. It's autobiographical. It's about, it's a, it's a lot about your father, but it's, it's told in an interesting way. Yeah. So, um, right. So in terms of story, uh, mm. it follows um, 
my own kind of re-examination of my relationship with my father and an examination of what I consider to be one of the greatest failures in my life, which is that when he died 15 years ago, um, I didn't do anything to uh, honor his life or memorialize him in any way. And the and through the play, I, you know, I recount kind of the reasons why um, I didn't do that, but also come around to, you know, a, a regret or a, a desire to address that failure in some way. And, you know, the question of like, well, how do you, how do you repair a relationship with somebody who's already dead? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what do you do with that? You know, what do you do with these unspoken words or unasked questions when there's no way that you will get those answers in this living plane, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and where I land with that is really just using my imagination and my art to bridge that distance and to try to arrive in a place of healing and forgiveness, you know, of myself as much as uh, of of my father. Yeah, it struck me at some point that in, in some ways it is just sort of a literal, you're going to repair that uh, that that problem. You're going, to, you're going to fix that problem by doing essentially the service for him. This play is, in a way, is the service, and you actually do a ritual. It's a kind of a, a, a is it a Shinto ritual? Yeah, it's or, it's a yeah. Buddhist ritual. Buddhist, sorry. Yeah, yeah. no, that's all right. It, yes, like so, you know. But in order to get to that moment, like I'm, the whole play builds up to it, and mm-hmm. um, it also I need the help of the audience to participate in the funeral. You know, like you can't have a funeral. Well, you know. You don't. You hope that people show up to your funeral. Sure, right? sure. Um, You'll never so, know, but right. You never know, but um, <laughs> I'm asking the audience to kind of play that part, um, and I lay the foundation for that by engaging them quite early on and throughout the piece to um, gently uh, participate by asking them questions. And the house lights are on for most of the play. Um, right. To answer your first question, like so, so that's what it's about. You yeah. know, on a story, story-wise, right? Yeah. But yeah. I think that formally, what's really delightful about it is that um, I have an ensemble of five actors. Uh, I'm the sixth. Um, four of those actors play me, um, and I myself don't don't play myself. I play my son, and and then later my father. Um, so. That has just been um, so, so fun. I, I don't know how else to say it. And that, that's a storytelling technique that I discovered kind of very early on in the process of creating this piece when I didn't know what this piece was going to be about at all. Mm, um, yeah. You know, I, to talk about the origins of the piece, if that's okay. Yeah, um, please, please. I had rehearsal space booked to start working on something. And all I knew about that piece was that I wanted it to to be about failure. I was interested in talking with people about failure, what failure means to them. How do we process failure? Um, Because I think culturally, 
we tend to avoid it or we tend to couch it in a different light like oh failure is like the stepping stone to learning and then then a success you know sure sure but yeah. why not spend you know why not acknowledge all of the complicated feelings that we have around failure like where's the place for that so mm-hmm. so i entered into the creation of this piece with these ideas in mind otherwise i had no ideas about character or storyline or or anything um and I think the day or two before the first session, working session, happened to be the 2016 presidential election. So after that election, the idea of failure just kind of exploded in my mind in a different way. It just felt heavy and visceral and... um, you know, there was a kind we were like I and my community were we were kind of grappling with this sense of just despair and devastation. Um mm-hmm. and really questioning like where like where are we? <laughs> like who who are we? Are we living in the world that we imagined we were living in? Or is this all just like you know, what is what's going on? Um yeah, yeah. so that's the energy with which we started this exploration and um, the first three months we were really just about sitting on the floor in a circle with each other and sharing our failure stories. Um, And then as we collected these stories, um, we, with the permission of the original storytellers, we started to play with them. Right. So instead of, you know, Rob, if you had shared a story with me, I would say, okay, well, now we're going to have Alex tell the story of Rob and, and Betsy's going to play Rob in the story. And then I'm going to be the future Rob kind of commenting on the past Rob, you know, Mm -hmm. there was like a displacement of the storyteller, a fracturing of the storyteller Hmm. um, that was born out of this process which I found really um, exhilarating. And also I found that it kind of opened up more touch points for the audience. Um, Somehow it felt like more accessible. So it wasn't like a singular thing that was owned by one person, but Mm -hmm. it felt more like a communal experience. So that's really where the idea came from. of having multiple people playing me. Right, but also you, it sounded to me like you said that you had the form yeah. and the sort of topic before you had the subject, which was your father and this particular, right. this what you call your failure, um, or what you thought of as a failure. So that's interesting, so you had the form. I, I'm really fascinated by the, by the, both the fracturing and then also the participatory elements. I mean, I know that Ludic Proxy, you'd had some participatory elements too, and that seems to be something you keep coming back to. And I wonder why, and how, how does that go? Does it make, just make it more exciting in the room? Or is it also, as you say, makes the audience feel more part of it. And I also don't want to know any anecdotes about how it's gone. Cause it, the night I went, it seemed to go well, but I'm sure there's nights where it feels, it feels different. <laughs> <laughs> yes, for sure. Yeah. So um, yeah, you know, this is, 
ever since I graduated from college or even when I was studying theater in college, there was just the huge looming question for theater students was like, you know, why are we doing this? Mm. Why are we doing theater? Like, you know, there's TV and film, so much more accessible, so many more audiences, so much more money. Yes, yes. Like, why? Why do we even bother continuing to do this as an art form? And that's why, that is why, you know, I'm always looking for the reason, what is the what do we need from the audience? Like, what mm-hmm. is the reason that we need to have this audience in the same room as this work? How does the work engage the audience? How does the relationship between the play and the audience evolve through the course of the piece? Mm-hmm. Um, and so with, with Ludic Proxy, which was a, a three-part play, and um, each part, it, it was kind of represented a moment in time. So there was the past, the present, and the future. And each part kind of engaged the audience the way the audience can um, participate in that moment in time. So the the past, you know, we can't change things in the past, but we remember things, right? And every time we remember things, we are carving out some a map in our brain or or firing patterns and you know with our synapses. So there's a kind of repetitiveness or, or circular nature of memory. Um, and that's what I was trying to kind of emulate by having the audience sit in the round and have the have memory elements kind of emerge from the audience banks and then recede. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the second act, which is the present, the present moment being the only time that we actually are able to affect change in the moment. Mm-hmm. And there I really handed the reins over to the audience um, because the the play at that point was structured like uh, a choose your own adventure Mm -hmm. book. So the actors would play out a scene. They would arrive at a point where a decision had to be made and the audience would vote on which path the narrative would take. And Mm. At first, the stakes were pretty low, like you could choose between reading the newspaper or watching TV. But as you kind of go through that exploratory part of the play, um, the stakes would gradually get a little bit higher and you would learn that, oh, we're in Fukushima right now. Oh, Mm. this is five years after the nuclear power uh, accident. You know, oh, we are still worried about radiation in the air. Oh, and then you find out that your sister is pregnant, Uh, living in Fukushima. So what, you know, what do you do? Like, how do you convince her to leave with you? Or do you stay with her? You know, so so that was how that worked. Um, And with the nosebleed, I mean, it, it really, like the the origins of the nosebleed really laid the foundation for how I wanted to engage the audience. So, you know, working or develop, developing a piece out of the kind of devastation we were feeling post-election, I felt like we needed space to heal. Like, I feel mm. like we needed space to be together and and exercise empathy towards ourselves and one another. Um, 
And so that, that desire to create a very vulnerable and healing space for the audience has been the driving uh, motivation or, or the goal from the beginning. Um, and in order to do that, I asked the audience themselves to, to be vulnerable or to, you know, at least reflect on, on potentially like vulnerable moments in their lives so that they can um, arrive in that empathic space with us. Right. And so just, just to, to let listeners know who haven't seen it, I mean, the way it starts, I think the reviews tell us this too. Um, it starts with the actors on stage as themselves telling a story of their own failure from their lives, which from, from what I've read, they, they do vary it up. Not, they don't have locked stories that they say every night, which yeah. is, is interesting. Yeah. But then they ask, I think, one or two audience members just to, to offer their own stories of failure, which I, must be fascinating to hear. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I do. I I did. I did hear from a little bird told me that that uh, Hillary Clinton came to a recent performance yeah. to to bring it full circle to 2016. I know. I I wish that it was it was wonderful that she came. I, I felt mm-hmm. so honored. Um, we unfortunately didn't have a whole lot of time to you know chat afterwards. Right. Right. Um, right. But I would have loved to you know tell her the the origin story of the play. Right. Right. Um, and so I'm, I wonder, is that, has that been, and then I, the other elements that, just to let people know, there's elements, there's moments throughout the play where you say, who, who here hates your father or who here? So people, there's raising of hands moments are pretty low, low stakes, but then there's moments where we ask to write on a piece of paper. We have a few minutes to write things we would want to say to our father, which was an interesting exercise for me. My father's not, not deceased, but he is, he is in assisted living. And so I was, had a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, to say there, um, and then at the end, as, you, as you've alluded to, you invite certain people, about a half a dozen people, I think it is, to come up and help with a, with a, with a ceremony. Yeah. And I, I, you know, some of this feels a little bit like takes me back to 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 camp or something like who wants to participate, you know, who wants to, and but it is, is the feeling in the audience, the feel that the audience is really there with you, or is it a little bit of come on, people, come on, be with us, that kind of thing. I think that by that time, by that moment in the play, um, people are really emotionally connected yeah. to what's happening. Um, and, you know, obviously while some audiences are shyer than others, um, we usually don't have a problem um, getting the eight volunteers that we ask for. Right. And, um, and, you know, what we ask them to do is to, to work in pairs with another audience member mm-hmm. uh, using chopsticks to carry um, shredded pieces of paper, the, the aforementioned uh, questions to your father that have been shredded in a paper shredder, um, representing, you know, the, the remains of my father um, and put them pick them up with the chopsticks and put them in the urn. And, you know, people have varying degrees of ability with, with chopsticks and, (laughs) and that's okay. You know, I think that it's a really, that is also a really vulnerable moment. And Mm -hmm. um, it's, uh, it is, it's, it's very different every night. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's part of the beauty of it. Yeah. I I mean, I maybe think of, uh, 
Fairview when audience is invited on the end on this, onto the stage at the end. It's an, a strange and it's meant to be an awkward moment of vulnerability where people who are not supposed to supposed to be on the stage are up there, um, you know, and not performing but sort of performing because you're now you're on the stage. Uh, and I, I obviously you you feel that you get enough out of it that it's just not there's some uh, hurdle to get over in terms of turning toward the audience and asking for this right and and making yourselves vulnerable as performers to say this moment is under is not in our control please please jump in um but uh yeah it's it's fascinating I mean again I don't the other thing is the, the fracturing that we talked about I I thought of strange loop uh, and the thoughts the way his his uh uh usher's uh thoughts are represented by different people and i wonder it was a fra was that was a fracturing partly a way to you know literally, literally refract the story into different points of view uh i think i think we've talked a lot about the serious stuff i should mention the play is very funny and there's a lot of lighter material and i think that has something to do with who's playing what part too uh makes that fun to follow yeah um you know when i was the first kind of pass um, at bringing a, an iteration of this play to the stage, um, I was less, I was thinking less about, you know, what part, you know, there, it's divided into Aya 1, Aya 2, Aya 3, mm -hmm. Aya 4. And I was honestly not so much thinking about like, what does Aya 2 represent? Like, are they the oh, know, right. intellectual it, part yeah, of me okay. or, you know, it's like inside uh, out or something. Right? Yeah, yeah. It, it wasn't that. It wasn't that tidy. Okay. Uh, and it was really more about who are the four performers I trust deeply enough to embody me as a character, and who trust me enough uh, and my work enough to to step into that because. You know the the act of embodying someone is is a, is a violent act, actually. You know, mm. it is, and that is um, requires a lot of trust, especially if you know the person that you're embodying is still alive mm -hmm. uh, and standing in front of you and giving you direction. <laughs> Um, you know, it's, it requires trust and vulnerability both ways. So it's really about like how, who, who do I trust with, with these, um, with these roles. Right. And then over time, it has kind of teased itself out, you know, and I think instinctually I gave certain scenes to certain people. And then as that has settled in or as, you know, um, there was a moment when I kind of shifted, you know, this scene should go over here to this mm -hmm. person. Um, it has clarified a little bit um, so that, they, you know, they do, I feel like dramaturgically, they, you can make an argument that they represent different aspects of me. Like this is, uh, this is a queer Aya. This is a, my mom identity. Aya. Mm -hmm. This is like a, you know, a, immigrant Aya. This is mm -hmm. like, you know, younger high school, college age Aya. Yeah. Uh, and that kind of, you know, they, it all come, becomes like a Venn diagram of like, well, what, what is a person? Like how many identities does a person have? Like we all have yeah. multiple identities, multiple mm -hmm. roles that we're playing, you know? So um, yeah, it was kind of like an attempt to 
explore and explode the complexity of just like being a human being in the world. Well, that's a great segue to to talk about your performance in the in it. First of all, I want to ask a little bit how and why you decided you needed to be in it, or was it just always you always wanted to be embodied in the play, not yourself, but but in on stage with it. Right. So, so there was a moment when you know uh, the or the first iteration, the first exploration, which we called Failure Sandwich, which was involved multiple people's stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, and that exploration and I, you know after I emerged from that process the things that I left with were two questions one was you know I want to create this vulnerable empathic space um, and I'm asking people to share very vulnerable stories w- with each other um, and but those original storytellers just purely because of their schedule may not always be in the room when we're performing this and that lead that led the audience to question uh you know was that story true Mm, about mm. you know alex or you know whatever okay yeah um so the question uh, questions around authenticity emerged the second one was you know i'm asking people to create this vulnerable empathic space but I am not direct as a person responsible for calling the space into being. I don't have skin in the game. Mm, You know, what is my, what is, what is my responsibility to this? Mm. So in answer to those two questions, um, I was like, well, maybe I need to, (laughs) maybe I need to do this. Like maybe I need to spend some time thinking about these questions for myself mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. so so then once i decided that okay i've looked inwards this is what i think my failure is and now i'm going to write it mm-hmm. um then the writing actually came very quickly and the i there are certain ideas that i, I knew right away about the play. Um, One is the appearance of a special somebody at the end of the play. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other is that I would have to embody my father. Um, And I knew that from a kind of dramaturgical standpoint, knowing that it would be the, that, that is the piece of the play that will make it feel the most complete for the audience right right well yeah it's i mean i have a lot of questions about it. i want to just share the image now of you as your father from the play hold on oscar's going to share uh i think in a second um because i i um yeah i have, I have a lot of questions about being the playwright not just the person who this is about but i can i saw ask you this question about um b- being the 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 writer of the words, I, I noticed when I was watching Tracy Letts in um, the minutes, like <laughs> he's plays the mayor of the town, I think, or, the, or the, and he's he's watching everyone do his lines, and he's sort of a it's sort of it's hard not to look back at the, the guy who wrote it. There he is. Oh, th- th- there you are. There you are as your dad. <laughs> um, it's an amazing image. Um, and who, who drew who drew the who made the painting or the oh, drawing? Oh, I did. 
I did. That's you. Okay. Right. Right. Um, and then you also doing a sort of drawing, <laughs> a recreation of him uh, in this. Can you talk a little bit about what it's? I know what it's like. What it feels like. What you're drawing on is it, is it drawing on memory or are you living the memory in in the space with with everyone? Do you feel like he's a present in some way, in some mystical way? Or <laughs> um, yeah, this is such a weird, uh, tricky question because I'm not exactly sure how to answer it, but. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm I'm middle aged. You're middle aged. I don't know yep. if this happens to you, but when I look in the mirror, yeah, oftentimes all yeah. I see are my parents, my yep. freaking parents, <laughs> <laughs> and like I kind of hate it, you know. But yeah. I also like have to embrace it, and so the idea of accessing my father it is not that far away from me, you know, mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. I, when I look at my brother, I, I see our parents and I'm like, mm -hmm. Oh my God, geez. <laughs> and it's, you know, and with that kind of recognition comes a lot of feelings. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And, you know, we're just like one step closer to like facing our own mortality. So mm -hmm. it's, it's really, um, the conjuring of him or the channeling of him um, is kind of easy. It's not mm -hmm. like I'm doing some kind of like uh, crazy mental acrobatics to get right. there. Um, right. I, I fall into it. And, you know, the moment that I'm choosing to embody him is, um, as I explained in the play, one of the last times I see him and you know interact with him it's um several months after he's had a stroke um he had a stroke when he was visiting japan and he it took several months for him to be well enough to come back to uh his home in california and we just weren't sure uh how able he was going to be living independently in his home uh, and we, we realized within weeks or months that, you know, it was going to be difficult that we, he, he couldn't live there by himself, even mm -hmm. with a, you know, a visiting nurse coming by to check up on him. And so we decided to move him uh, to a, several different assisted living facilities. It ended up being... Um, Ah, uh, and you know, I I lived in New York at the time, so I was like monthly or twice a month. I would be flying out to California to kind of check mm. up on him and see how yeah. you know it was going and all that stuff. So, um, you know, those are my last memories of him. Um, yeah. so it's it's not hard to kind of bring that bring that back. Yeah, I mean, and not to dive dive too deeply into the personal part of it, but you know, your relationship with him was strained. You allude to there being really only two conversations you remember having with him as an adult person, like person to person, and you sort of recreate those. Um, it doesn't seem like he had a lot of empathy for you, and yet this act of performing him on stage is a kind of radical empathy for him. I mean, do you feel like do you feel like that? You feel like you're making peace with that part of him, or do you feel like in, in a way you're sort of reaching out to him in a way that he never did or was able to for whatever reason? Yeah. Um, 
yeah wow i'm getting really emotional thinking about yeah. those. um it's I, I mean i think that's right it's you know it's complicated right like mm. all the things that i say in the play are true like i have very conflicted feelings about him he was from my point of view very imperfect father in many ways right. um i had a lot of you know anger and bitterness towards him and at the same time he was a frightened vulnerable old man at the end of his life and you know I think that about that a lot like especially when I'm riding the subway in New York and there, mm. there's so much like craziness going on and a lot of aggression and um you know and in my mind I'm <laughs> In order to get through my commute to wherever, I'm often like, this person was once an infant, you know, and this person will one day be a very, very old person. And we oh are God. all, we are all, you know, we were all once infants. We were all, we will all, hopefully, if we're lucky, we will live to be old, uh, elderly people. And, yeah. you know, let us have compassion for one another in that. That's what that's almost eerie that you mentioned that because I feel like I the subway was a place I was do I don't do it as much anymore, but I would almost like a mental tick where I would see people, whether they were crazy or not, just I would see someone who was a certain age and I could I could picture them as a child and that was maybe feel warm toward them or I feel I picture them as an old person also made me feel like they're so vulnerable. And whatever I felt like somehow seeing that many people every day, which is, is in some ways is not normal, not what we're, our humans are made for seeing that many strange strangers, you know, I feel like it was a way of processing that I would just constantly flip like a flip book. Like I could just see mm. how, how, how that walk is going to slow down, but then I could picture them. Cause I've got little kids. I could picture them as like little kids on their mom's arm. So I don't, yeah, that that's uh yeah, this is, this is deep stuff. I wanted to mention you, so you have two boys yeah. you, joining the two boy club. I've got two boys as well. Yes. <laughs> and mine are, are nine going on 10 and 13. So that's pretty close to the ages that's of yours, right? Very close. Yeah. My, my younger one just turned 10. My older one will be 13 in a couple months. And tell me, uh, are they, well, tell me about them. Are, are they into theater? My, my, my boys are sort of, and sort of not. And of course I have mixed feelings in both directions. Like I'm happy for it, but like, do I want them to do that for a living? I don't know. <laughs> oh my God, I know, right? Yeah. Um, well, fortunately they have exhibited no interest in, okay, right. in, in performing in theater or really my career at all. Okay. All right. <laughs> That's um, healthy in this way, right? I, mean, I think so. Um, <laughs> the, they both play violin, which, uh, you know, oh, okay. their dad played started playing violin when he was three so we okay when they were three so you know but I don't know that they're gonna go and become you know professional musicians or anything like that it's just like a good and difficult task to uh get them to participate in you know yes no I had very similar I I I know you're doing a play working on a play called meat suit is that what it's called the working title yes it's a very evocative title and it's about parenthood I wonder if you started talking about we started talking about uh parenthood and the challenges of that could you talk a little bit about that I know that's a topic that we've written about and it's been on my mind a lot as a as a working parent uh not in the theater but around nonprofits in the theater yeah how, how has that been and, and 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 what do you think uh do you think theaters have made strides in that area to, to help parents work in I the field I think they're starting to and that yeah. you know there's conversation around it which is fantastic because mm -hmm. 
you know, I remember, you know, back when I did work at TCG back in 2010 and I went mm -hmm. to that conference, um, I was talking to some colleagues and I, being a new mom and, you know, yeah. I was, you know, pumping. I was like using my breast pump in like random bathrooms at the conference center and I ran into a, 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 another theater leader who was also a mom and she was like, mm. you know, oh, you're a mom too. And you know, I was, I was like, I just wish that we could talk about this, you know, yeah. and, and she agreed. And then we walked away from the conversation, <laughs> yeah. that was not, yeah. you know, yeah. um, so at, I feel like at least, you know, people are, are starting to and are willing to talk about it, which is great. Um, Meat Suit is about the kind of physical and emotional and psychological toll that motherhood takes on women and their bodies and mm -hmm. the meat suit part of it is that um you know i had this kind of impulse that uh the play should be performed in conversation with the um the buffon performance style so like mm. using really exaggerated deformations of the body to represent the kind of uh you know physically symbolize the the responsibility or the burden or the weight of uh, of motherhood and you know so something like you know these enormous breasts would migrate to become like enormous thighs or you know right. the, the idea that like oh i see or, or it was under, like under a, yeah i got you under a suit kind of thing yeah yeah or that yeah. these deformations kind of move in on, on, on the body or move from one body to another body right um right. Yeah, so it, it's still very much in, in development, um, but uh, we've, we've had fun in the few workshops that we've had of it. From, yeah, from what I gather, you it sounds like you, I've just based on what the way this play developed and what you're describing that, you, you work a lot from the, the embodiment and the embodied physical theatrical form or, or or space it's going to take and then it's not like you work there first but you're working at the same time you're working on the ideas and the, the story and the dialogue all, all the stuff all the traditional playwriting things right yeah, yeah yeah that's right um yeah i'm i'm never like the part of uh theater making that i love is like being in a room with other people and mm -hmm. playing you know and that's 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 the part that i love so much it's not the sitting in a room on a computer and trying right. to like hammer out a play. Um, all respect to my playwright friends who who do that every day. Um, I just can't. Um, I can't. Uh, yeah. And my ideas, you know, don't spring from text on the page necessarily. Mm -hmm. That you know, they kind of first have to happen in space, in time, on bodies. Mm -hmm. And then I understand what it is that I want to say or, or I'm trying to say. And then I can go into a process of writing. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's a little, it's a back and forth between um, the rehearsal studio and, and writing. Is that a little bit why you tend to direct your own work? Or at least as a, in a couple instances I know of you, Lucid Ludic Proxy, and then this one, working as a writer yeah. director, which is not a, not, not, not a typical, no, not typical. Theater. I mean, yeah. to be honest, like, you know, no one, <laughs> no one was interested in what okay. I was say. Like, I, so really, okay. it came from a place of like, well, if I want to see my work 
in the world, like, yeah. I guess I have to direct it myself and produce it myself because nobody else is going to do it, you know, okay. and that just turned into like a bad habit. <laughs> I mean, obviously, Liga Center could probably find somebody, but but it, 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 at this point, this is part of your practice, right? This is how you work. Uh, yes, yes, yeah. I, I, yes. That's that's very true. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, again, I, I think you you're obviously at, at, in some ways at the heights of the field at working at Lincoln Center, but you you come from a different angle. I want to know, you know, you've worked in international collaborations and trans translations. The big question to sort of uh, to to round out the arrow with, but sort of obviously the field has gone through big changes in the past couple of years due to the pandemic, due to uh, racial reckoning, as some people call it. We see white American theater. I wonder. None of that stuff is new, like the the safety of people in the audience and the safety of people in the streets, uh, and who gets to tell the story and tell their stories and who who decides. I wonder how you feel the field. Basically, what's the state of the field in, in in your in your mind? Obviously, you're doing you're doing well by it, but do you feel like the field is doing well by you and by others? Yeah, you know, I think it is. It's a it's an ongoing conversation that will pro that will hopefully continue and uh, and will result in you know movement and change. I feel extremely lucky to be partnering with Lincoln Center Theater. At the same time, you know, I had a lot of apprehension around it, mm -hmm. um, stepping into such an established uh, institution. And I, you know, I would be lying if I said like, uh, you know, that, that I just had a lot of anxiety and, and hesitation and trepidation around the whole thing. Um, luckily, you know, our conversations have been very good and they have been very open to, um, you know, my ideas around like what I, what, how I want to, you know, I want to center uh, Asian people, immigrant people in the audience, as well as, you know, obviously on the stage and like, right. how do we okay. do that? How, how do we work together to do that? Um, and so we're, you know, we're in this conversation. Um, and and for that I'm grateful. Right. Yeah. That that, that is a big part of it. I think uh, institutions not just there's the people they put on stage and they hire to do the work, and there's the people in the offices. Right. That's another place. And the board the boardrooms, frankly, too. But then there's the people actually in the who are coming to see it and who are who know about it. Uh, I know this is a this is a conversation that's gone on in most of the theaters, not just in New York, but but everywhere. Um, and the audience. Do you feel like the audiences have been good and responsive? I mean, the, the night I was there, they were, but that was that was in previews. So, <laughs> yeah, um, I I feel really um, uh, grateful. We've had really really wonderful audiences. Um, I've seen a lot of AAPI folks in the house. A lot of young people in the folks yeah. in the house, um, and also like you know Lincoln Center regulars mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. in, in the house who have responded um, so so deeply um to the piece so um yeah i'm very uh, happy about that well we're happy we're happy for you and happy to have you on this program I, it's been great to catch up with you really um you know all, all, all the threads of your work um really resonate and i feel like in this conversation i can see why so um i thank you so much for joining us on off script and i hope to see you again soon and see oh your work goodness. up 
<laughs> Thank you so much for having me, Rob. It was really great to catch up. All right. Take care, everybody.